Hey, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. We're so glad you're listening to our podcast. If you want more information about the church, go to www.clovishills.com or you can download our app in your iTunes or Google Play Store. Enjoy the podcast. Here's the deal. We're going to start a new series today, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty pumped about it. It's on the book of James, and it's called A Faith That Works. And... Um, I'm just going to be like 100% honest with you. I don't know how long this series is going to go. Uh, normally our series go four to six weeks, and that's cool and wh- whatever, and that's what most churches do. But um, we're going to go through James till we're done with it, basically. So it could be six months. I don't know. So we'll take breaks in between. Like I'm not going to make poor Jeremy Affelt preach on the book of James. Um, <laughs> And there'll be times where we have guest speakers, and we're not going to make them unless they want to. And then also, um, there may be an instance in the church where, like, we feel like there's an issue or something that needs to be addressed. And we'll push pause on James, and we'll do that. And then we'll unpause and keep going back to James. So that's going to be a theme for a long time. And um, the, the title of today's sermon to kick off this series, I, I entitled it Diary of a Formerly Wimpy Kid. Okay? And some of you, you if you have children... You know what I'm talking about. That's actually, there's a series of books called Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And it's the story of a kid named Greg Hefley who's entering into junior high and he's little and he's tiny and he's wimpy and he's got this older brother named Roderick that's all super cool and edgy and he lives in his shadow and, and, and it's just, life is hard as a seventh grader, as a little puny wimpy seventh grader. And um, today, we're gonna, I'm going to, th- hopefully the sermon will make sense with the title by the end. I don't want to give it away, though, so I'm not going to the, the, give up the, the ghost on it. But we're going to be talking about James. And um, James, uh, at a certain point in his life, I, I would say was a wimpy kid. Um, I can relate. I was a wimpy kid. Um, at, well, I still might be a wimpy kid at some points in my life. But I remember um, in high school, my freshman year of high school, I was five foot, eh, five, 94 pounds, 95 pounds if I was wet, you know, so I was yoked, right? And um, just a little guy, and I don't think my voice had changed yet, mister. And I had that whole thing going on, and um, I, played, I played football. I played defensive back, which is about the only position a 95-pound kid could play. And then I played soccer as well. And um, in soccer, they, or, or for, my, for those of you that habla espanol, football, um, in, in soccer, you, we had this rivalry with the wrestling team, and we were always getting dressed at the same time, and the room where they wrestled was right next to all our lockers, and they'd always just give us grief. It wasn't really a rivalry. They could care less about us. We hated them. Um, they just picked on us, basically, and we took it. And um, I remember one day, I was, got out of class early because we had a game, and I was changing, you know, and... Um, my friend Hugo, who was a wrestler, he was a freshman, but he was on, a, on varsity because he was a stud. He comes walking by, and he starts making fun of me. And mind you, this is the 80s, not politically correct, uh, 2017. So he um, referred to my sexuality and my attraction. And I looked at him, and I said, me? And unfortunately, I was standing there in my tidy whities at the time in full glory. I said, me, I go, dude, you're about to go in that room and wrestle, roll around with another dude in tight clothes. And I hear, what? And I went, huh? And this hand grabbed my shoulder. And I know it's not true, but this is what it felt like. It felt like the hand was so big that the fingers went across my whole body. And I looked up, 
And there was this guy, he was a senior, his name was Jim Jennings. And Jim went on to play offensive line for the San Francisco 49ers for four years. He, he might as well have been 34 feet tall and 5,000 pounds. Because that's what it felt like in the moment. And he was a wrestler. And he did not like my comment whatsoever. And all of a sudden I feel my body lifted off the ground. It's not an out-of-body experience. It's him picking me up with one hand. And he proceeds to drag me into the wrestling room. He goes, we got fresh meat, gentlemen. And boom, he throws me down on the ground. And mind you, I'm in my tidy whities So the varsity wrestling team proceeds to start doing all kinds of wrestling moves on me, tying me in knots, hurting me. And, you know, it's it's everything within me not to cry. I'm not going to cry. And I'm fighting and I'm trying, you know. And they're just punishing me. And then finally this one dude's got me and I feel like he's going to rip my legs apart, right. He's got me in the splits. It was called a banana splits. And it hurt so bad that I just couldn't handle anymore. And you do, when you're little, you do what little guys got to do. I bit him right on the arm. And he let go of me. And then they proceeded to draw and quarter me. They got my arms and legs like this. And they laid me on the ground. And they started giving me this thing called a pink belly. Which is like a rite of passage for wimpy kids. Okay? And they're pink bellying me. And I'm just uh, I'm yelling at them. But eventually I, I ran out of strength. And I just kind of laid there like a limp noodle. And they gave up on me. So they picked me up. They opened the doors to the gym. And they threw me out into the gymnasium. And have you ever heard skin hit a gym floor? It's like... That's what happened to me. I got, whoa, and I looked up, and there was a girl's PE class. So see, um, now in 2017, people would have went to jail. There would have been lawsuits. There would have been teachers fired. But in the, this is the 80s, and the 80s is like, we're just messing around. Um, and that's how it works. In 2017, I'd be getting counsel for PTSD. I'd be on meds and all of that. In the 80s, um, I had ADD. I didn't get any medicine. It was like, pay attention, kid. That was my medicine. And the medicine was, well, toughen up. You'll be stronger for it. And, and, and I was in the end. Um, so James, we're, you're going to find, starts off as a wimpy kid. Um, but somehow he ends up writing this book, and, and we'll talk about it in a minute. So I want to read to you from... From God's word, James chapter 1. We're not going to have a scripture reader today. I'm going to do it because there's only four verses. And I didn't want to make a scripture reader have to go to all three services to read four verses. So if you would, I'd love it if you could stand in honor of God's word. This is James 1, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, if you, if you have your, um, your outline, we're, we're just going to get right to it in here. And number one is this. Who wrote James? Now, that seems like a dumb question, right? Uh, some of you are like, da, da, da. Uh, James wrote James. It says it right there. He says it. If you look at the verse, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me fill you in on something, though. In uh, New Testament times, um, people back in those days weren't um, super creative with names, okay? Um, you know, they, they didn't come up with these unique names. It wasn't in to give your kid a unique name and spell it with a Y, okay, like it is today. 
Um, but, but, you know, that's the way it was. And if you're a guy, um, there are a ton of dudes named Jesus. There were a ton of dudes named James. There were a ton of guys named John. There was about ten names that were really common during that time. So um, James is a very common name, and we see him pop up all over the, the New Testament, but they're different guys. There, there's different guys jumping around, four different guys actually, jumping around the New Testament. It's just like John. When I first started reading the Bible, I thought that there was one John. There's, you know, there's the book of John, the gospel of John, and then there's like the sequels, right? First John, second John, third John. I thought it was like a, you know, like a four, four books together. And they were all written by this guy, John. And I was like, okay. And I thought it was John the Baptist. I just assumed the guy that wrote the book of John and the other Johns was a Baptist and he wrote them. But actually, there were two Johns in the Bible. One was the disciple named John. And he was the one, he was Jesus' favorite, according to him. He, he, whenever he referred to himself, he called himself the one that Jesus loved, okay? So that, there's the disciple John. And then there was John the Baptist, who was a completely different dude, who was Jesus' cousin. That's my cousin, you know, kind of thing. And John the Baptist didn't write anything. He was a prophet. He was fiery. He was kind of crazy. And John the disciple wrote the books of John. And the weird part is that John the disciple wrote about John the Baptist. So it gets really confusing then. Well, James is the same way. Because in the book of James, you know, or in the, in, I mean in the Gospels, you start finding there's a guy named James. And he's the son of Zebedee. He had a brother, James and John. You'd hear them talk about him in the scripture. James and John. They had a nickname. They were called the Sons of Thunder. Isn't that an awesome name? Don't you picture them like cruising in on Harleys? Like, oh, here come the sons of thunder. They're actually kind of wussy, believe it or not. I, I think, you know. Uh, there's a scene in the New Testament where they get their mommy to go talk to Jesus about giving him a seat at his right and his left hand when he's in his kingdom. And mom goes and says, hey, can, I, um, can my boys have a seat at your right and your left? And Jesus is like, get out of here. So um, I remember Pastor Scott was telling me he had, he, he had to fire someone once at a job he had, and the person's mom came and wanted to talk to him about it. He's like, no, your son's an adult. Stop it. Um, <laughs> this is why he got fired, because you're doing this. But anyways, um, then there's another James, right? So you have James and John. And then you have James. They called him James the Less, and he was the son of Alphaeus. And the problem is they didn't have last names back then. You were just, I would have been Sean, son of Jim Beatty, you know, or... You know, you'd be Susie, son of, or daughter of David, right? No last names. So, so you have those two James. And then you have a third James, James, the brother of Jesus. He was Jesus' brother. And, um, you know, we, we, we hear about him in uh, Matthew 13, 55. You, it, look, go ahead and look on the screen. It says here, um, they, they were asking about Jesus, like, really? He thinks he's the Messiah? And it says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? It was basically people saying, we know that family. Really? Jesus, the oldest brother, thinks he's the son of God? He's James's brother. He, there, there's no way. And Simon, that guy's a dork. No way. And Jesus, he was the weird one in school. That, that's what's going on there. They're questioning because they've known him their whole life. And isn't that how it works when someone you know that you didn't expect to make it big, makes it big, you're like, what? That guy? How'd that chick make it to be famous? You know, that kind of thing. So... James, though, we find this James we're talking about, the brother of Jesus, is the one who wrote the book of James. And um, 
the question is, who did he write it to, though? If you're going to interpret the Bible properly, you want to know who wrote it. Who is he writing to? So you can kind of read it in the right context with the right lens on. So if you look in verse 1, look what, it's, look what it says. The second part of verse 1, it says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Let me explain to you what that means. The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. See, James, we're gonna, when we read the book of James, this book of all the New Testament um, epistles, it is the most Jewish of all of them. Okay, James was as Jewish as you could get. Right? And he's actually writing this epistle to all of the Jewish Christians that are living in the Roman Empire at this time. That are, that are spread out throughout the earth. And let me explain to you what happened. See, um, the Jews that believed in Jesus got incredibly persecuted. We find in Acts 8 that the, that the Romans and the Jewish authorities began to persecute and arrest and kill these Jewish Christians. Before that... The Jewish Christians and the regular Jews, they all worshiped together. They all went to the same synagogue. They all went to the temple at certain times of the year. And Christianity was a very Jewish movement. But the, after Acts 8, they kick all the Jewish Christians out of the synagogue. They kick them all out of Jerusalem. And, and, and they begin to arrest them all. And they all go running into hiding into different cities in the Roman Empire. And see, the authorities thought, ah, We've crushed Christianity. We've killed this Jesus movement. But here's, here's the, the cool part about the movement of Jesus. Every time some power force rises up and tries to stomp out Christianity, Christianity is like trying to squeeze jello. It just, it spreads and it gets real messy. And it's awesome. Because here's what happened. When, when they crushed Christianity in Jerusalem, they all fled and went to the corners of the earth and they began to gossip the gospel. And the gospel went to all the corners of the earth. And you can't stop Christianity. You can't stop it. As a matter of fact, um, you know, so, some time ago when China became communist, they, the communists took over China and they, they said, we're going to stop this Christianity thing. And they kicked out all of the Western missionaries, all the seminary teachers, all the Bible teachers. They were all kicked out and they made Christianity illegal. And they said, there, we've, we've done it. We've crushed Christianity. But here's the thing. When you crush Christianity, it goes, it spreads. It gets, wor it gets better, to be honest. And, and, and um, I don't know if you know this, there are more Christians in China today than there are in America. I don't know if you know this, but in the next century, the greatest Christian thinkers will come out of China and India. The next C.S. Lewis, the next Francis Schaeffer, the next um, Tim Keller, the next Scott Hinman will all come out of China. <laughs> I wish he was here to hear that, man. It's love for my boy. Anyway, so um, the greatest thinkers will come out because you can't stop it. So the, James is writing it to Jews all throughout the Roman Empire. But here's the thing. Um, unlike Paul's letters, all of Paul's letters were specific. They were written to specific churches, to the church in Ephesus. And then he would address problems and issues and, and, and fights and things that were going on in the church in Ephesus. Or the church in Colossae. Or the church in Corinth. And they were very specific. Right? Um, he would never have written a letter to the church at Clovis Hills, right? Because we don't fight and we don't have sin in our church and we don't struggle with anything, right? Right. Okay? But James is, is more of kind of a generic letter. And what happened was the early Christians, not just the Jewish Christians, but even the Gentile Christians began sharing this letter with each other. And they, they didn't have Xerox machines or scanners or took pictures with their cell phone or copy and paste. They would hand write this letter out over and over and over. And they would spread it throughout the, the empire. And it became a holy letter, a holy book for the earliest of Christians. And you'll see why as we, as, as we study it. So why was it written? That's the other question. 
Why is, why is the book, book of James written? Well, um, first and foremost, we're calling this series a faith that works. And here's why. The book of James, you're going to find, if you will commit to studying it with us, is incredibly practical. Um, it's an incre- Sometimes Paul's writings can be practical, but a lot of what he writes, too, is incredibly heady and brilliant and theological. But James is, is a, a far more practical, and it almost serves as a gospel counterbalance, where Paul always talked about you're saved by your faith, not as a result of your works. And, and there's nothing you can do to get yourself to heaven. And only the good deeds and the righteousness of Jesus can get you to heaven. And that's right. Amen? Yeah, you, know, you can't be good enough to get to heaven. Only Jesus was good enough for you. But then James counterbalances and says, that's right, you are saved by your faith. But if you're questioning whether you have faith or not, I can tell you if you do, are you acting like it? So there was a faith and a works that came together. And this is what we're going to learn, how to walk your faith out in the book of James. It's incredibly practical. So um, what you're going to find is the book of James draws from the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament, I believe. It's constantly drawing images from the Old Testament. And, and sometimes you get Christians that say, oh, well, I only, I only believe in the New Testament. I don't read the Old Testament. I stay away from the Old Testament. It, you, know, it, you know, I believe in the New Testament. And I want you to know something. If Jesus thought the Old Testament was the Word of God, and James, his brother, thought the Old Testament was the Word of God, it probably is the Word of God. And we should probably look to it time and time again, right? See, so you're going to find um, constant references to... Um, to what really um, the way Jesus saw the Old Testament. And, and, and James sees the Old Testament in the same way Jesus read it. Because here's the truth of the matter. Everyone reads the Bible with a certain lens. And it's through your story. It's through your, your, the way you see it. It doesn't mean you see it right all the time. Doesn't, that doesn't necessarily make sense. But, but what I want you to understand is everyone sees it through a lens. And the perfect lens was Jesus, right? And Jesus... Um, the way he would read the Old Testament was through the lens of something called the Shema. Everyone say Shema. It sounds like an old 50s doo-wop song, right? Sha, 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 Shema, sha, you know, kind of thing. Now, the Shema was something that the Jews would recite every day. As a matter of fact, they wrote it on little scrolls and they would nail it to their doorposts and they would touch it before they go out and they would say it. And it's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. And see, when someone asked Jesus, hey, what's the most important verse in the whole Bible? He said, the Shema. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. And he said, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, he was saying when he was reading the scripture, the lens and he, he read it with was through the Shema. To love God and love others. And you're going to see that theme throughout the book of James. It's just rich in the book of James. You're also going to see the Old Testament prophets are constantly being referenced in the book of James. And we'll point that out. You're going you're gonna to see the, um, the, the wisdom literature, the Proverbs. Um, someone told me once as a young man, they said, Sean, you want to be wise? And this guy was super wise. He was like Yoda to me. And I said, yeah. And he said, read the book of Proverbs every day. There's 31 Proverbs. That means most months have 31 days in it. Read one chapter of Proverbs every day and watch how God begins to make you wise over the time of your life. And the book of James is rich with the Proverbs. And then finally, it's all held together by Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see it all throughout the book of James. And it's, just, it's this beautiful exposition. So, um, 
So, so that's, that's why it's written. But I want to I give you just a little taste of just the practical wisdom that comes out of this book today. And I spent a long time setting up the book of James because I wanted you to understand where we're going and what we're doing. But let me give you a li little taste of this, this wisdom that comes out of God's word here. Look at verse 2 through 4, okay. This is James. He writes, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. That's how it says in the literal Greek, sisters, okay. I'm kidding. It doesn't say that in the literal Greek. <laughs> It says anthropos, which is a gender-neutral word. It means brethren, brothers and sisters, okay? Whenever you face trials of many kinds, so consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So... If, if, if you look at this passage, there's two things you can learn from that little nugget right there. And I, it's not in your outline, but if you want to write it down, you can. And number one is this. What James says is he says, trouble is inevitable. It, it's going to happen. It doesn't say consider it pure joy if you face trouble. It says consider it pure joy when you face trouble. Think about that. It's going to happen in your life Things will happen. As the prophet Forrest Gump said, it happens. Sometimes bad things happen and you step in them. And, it's, and everyone in our life, it happens to different degrees. For some people, it's a sickness. It's the death of a loved one. The loss of a career. The loss of a relationship. It, it could be um, some kind of disability that's put on you or, or a child or what, whatever it is. Um, all kinds of trials happen in life. They happen to all of us to varying degrees. And James is saying it's it, whenever and never before in human history. I want you to understand something. Never before in human history have we seen a culture so squeamish to trials and tribulation as our 21st century Western culture. Um, you know, if you were to travel the world, and I've been on just about every continent, um, most cultures are so much tougher than us when it comes to trials. They handle them so much better. You know, never before have we, have we ever, I've, we've never seen a culture, and this is a sociological phenomenon, that's so outraged by everything and so offended by everything. We're all offended by each other all the time. It's crazy to me how, like, we're just super pissed. And, and here, here's the thing. Um, I tell Christians this all the time. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, we really should be the least offended people on the planet. That when someone says something against us or hurts us or says something derogatory or even violent towards us, it rolls off us because we should be full of grace and truth. See, and here's what's going to happen. I can already tell you. They came out this week. Starbucks released its holiday cups. And there'll be some Christian group out there going, Starbucks didn't put Jesus on their cups. They're all, they're satanic. I know it. They need to die. And listen, if that's you, shut up. I'm looking at you on the internet. Because here's the deal. Starbucks is not a Christian company. You should not expect them to act like Christians because they are not. And, and, and here, here's the deal. Never before have we seen a, a, a culture that's more offended, more um, outraged, has more anxiety, 
fear? One of the reasons we, we have so much anxiety and fear is we have so much, and we're afraid of losing it. Um, depressed? Angry at God? Even though we have so much in our life. See, and it's really easy to get angry at God because he won't fight back. He loves you. And you can blame God for what you're going through. Or you can believe God that he's taking you through it. That's the difference. You can blame God for what he did to you. Or, what he, he's, or you can trust God for what he's going to take you through. And see, here's, here's the reason why our culture is this way. You, you have to understand this. We live in a secular culture. Okay? That's the world we live in now. Now, I know some of you out there, you're culture warriors. You're like, we're going to win it back. Listen, good for you. But I want you to know where you live today is a secular culture. We don't live in a Christian culture anymore. Just as the Jews were exiled to Babylon, they no longer lived in a Jewish culture. They lived in a, they were Jews living in a Babylonian culture. You are strangers and aliens, and you are Christians living in a secular culture. And in a secular culture, the reason we're so outraged, the reason we're so scared, the reason we're so, so um, offended easily, we, we sue at the drop of a hat for anything. And you have to understand why and have some empathy right now. Because in a secular culture, this life that you are living is all there is. In a secular culture, there is no hope of an afterlife. There is no hope of a better life in the future. There is no hope a thousand years from now. It's I got to protect what's mine and my happiness right here and right now because if it's taken from me, there is no hope of something better in the future. And see, as Christians, we buy into that lie all the time and we start acting like Babylon. Rather than being strangers and aliens. And this is, what's, this is what's going on. And there will be trouble. But when you are able to trust God through the troubles, you start to look a lot different than everyone else in the culture. They go, how are they doing that? The other thing with your trials that we learn from this little passage. Hi, Annabelle. Right? So, so listen. She was amen to me. Here's the deal. The other thing with, with our, our culture is James tells us it's possible to have joy in your trials. See, it doesn't say consider your trials pure joy. There, no, nowhere is he trying to say, hey, I've got pancreatic cancer. Isn't that awesome? And fake that you're happy. It, it's not saying that. It says consider it pure joy. It doesn't say consider your trial pure joy. Consider that there is joy in the midst of that pain you're going through. That, that, that God could find something for you in that trial. I was talking to, to Pastor Scott and I'm sure uh, in the next few weeks he'll be able to get up here and he's going to preach and you'll hear stories about him and Dave Cameron and Joey in Malawi. But they went to the prisons in Malawi, the poorest country in the world. And they're in these prisons and they're so overcrowded. Um, you know, there's this like the cells they're in, there might be 40, 50 people in this tiny cell, and they're so packed that at night when they sleep, the guard has to come in. And, he, and every hour he comes in and says, okay, wake up, roll over. And then they all roll over at the same time because there's no room. And he, he was telling me, he goes, yeah, we went into this women's prison, and we're talking to these women that, that you know, they, they don't know how long they're going to be in prison. They've never had a trial. Some of them are innocent, and, and they're there, and it's the miserable, it's filthy, 
it, their children are there. There's, it's just disgusting. They're going to the bathroom in, in, you know, like holes in the ground or in buckets. And, and they get one meal a day. And usually they're giving it to their kids. And it's so hard. He goes, and we talked to these women. And some of them were like, oh, I've got to tell you, um, if I didn't go to prison, I would have never met Jesus. It's such a blessing that I got to meet Jesus in prison. Did it, did it mean they loved prison? No. It meant they found joy in the midst of their trial. And the world sees that and goes, what? What? See, without suffering, how else are you going to get humility and compassion and faith? How, how would you get those? Imagine if you were a child and your parents raised you and they gave you everything you ever wanted. And, and what if they, they, they decided that, you know, they want to make sure that you never felt any pain in your life. And they, they hovered over you and made sure you never fell. They caught you every time before you fell. You never touched anything hot. No one ever said anything bad about my baby. Right? They never let anyone hurt you, say anything bad about you. What kind of adult would you grow up to be? Yeah, you, you look like a politician. Anyways, um, <laughs> shots fired, I know. Listen, Paul, in the Bible, he had a um, thing he called his thorn in his flesh. And um, what most scholars believe that the thorn in Paul's flesh was this sickness that he had. And he prayed multiple times to ask God to take it from him, and God wouldn't take it from him. Mind you, Paul is the dude that also God gave him the power sometimes. He would pray over people and they'd be healed. But then he asked God to heal him and God wouldn't heal him. You ever think about that? That's weird. Like I've seen like, like faith healers on TV and they'll be healing people but they're bald. Well, now I get it. But anyway, so... <laughs> wouldn't that be rad? Lord, give me hair. Poof, he has an afro. Um, so anyways. Paul asked, God, take this from me. And he says he, God wouldn't take it from him. And, and that sickness that he had, that he carried, whatever it was, was debilitating for him. But what it, he said it taught him is it said that I learned that God's strength is perfected in my weakness. And see, his trial that he carried a good part of his life was the very thing that made him humble. And humility is one of the, the, the greatest character traits you can have. The other thing that suffering and, and trials do is it brings compassion. How many of you in this room, well, let me put it this way. So coming up, right, November 18th, we have Jeremy Affelt coming. And that's going to be awesome, right? And um, the, our culture loves it when people, superstars come. And, and what will happen is you can invite all your friends that love the Giants. And, and they'll come and they'll, they'll hear Jeremy Affelt and go, wow, cool, maybe he'll sign my baseball. But hopefully in the process they hear the gospel and they rededicate their life or they get saved for the first time or whatever it is. And it's awesome. Or they just start coming back to church. And that, that's a wonderful thing. And it, he will draw a crowd. But I want you to know something. Most of us in the room will never relate to Jeremy Affelt and his success being a three-time World Series champion. Anyone here a three-time World Series champion in the room? Show hands. No one. Bunch of losers, man. <laughs> Let me give you another example. How many of you have flown first class before? Show hands. Hold them high. Hold them up. Hold them up. Don't be ashamed. I'm actually a little angry at you right now. Keep them up. 
Everyone look at them. Everyone look at those first class flying people. So I'm flying to India on Friday. It's a 21-hour flight, and I'm not flying first class. So I'm a little jealous right now. But here's the thing. Um, that's awesome. Good for you. How many of you now, show of hands, have lost someone or have someone close to you um, who's lost someone of cancer? Hold them high. Look around the room right now. Look around the room. Okay, you can put them down. Who did you relate to? Who did you connect with? The person that flew first class and you didn't? But all of a sudden, all our hands went up because we all know someone that's died of cancer or have a friend who, knows so, who had someone close to them die of cancer. See, and the truth of the matter is we relate to each other better out of our pain than our success because pain is something we've all experienced in our life. And the trial God takes you through, when he takes you to the other side of it, leaves you a wounded healer to be able to walk with someone else through that trial. You know, I think the coolest part about Jeremy Affelt is he, he's a celebrity and that's great and all that. But he, he could care less about his World Series rings. He's passionate about stopping human trafficking. He's connecting with pain. See, your trials give you compassion. That you're able to look at someone else that's going through something you went through. And, and be Jesus to them and say, I know what you're going through. Come with me. I'm going to show you how to walk through this. The last thing it does is it gives you faith when you get through it. Um, it, it doesn't always, you don't, you're not always full of faith in your trial, though, in the middle of it. You can't be like, man, my spouse left me yesterday, and I'm just so joyous in the Lord. He's the joy of my strength. My, oh, I love it. God, you're so good. You're my boyfriend now. Yeah, do that. That's weird. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be in pain. But here's what I want you to know. On the other side, you're going to re realize that God walked you through it. And your faith is going to be stronger. And here's what happens. When other people are struggling, they need your faith. I have a friend. Her name's Connie. She calls me from time to time. She had stage 4 um, uterine cancer. And it destroyed her body. She's had over 100 major surgeries in her life. They might as well just put a zipper on her across her, okay? And um, she's been this close to death maybe about 20 times in her life. As a matter of fact, she's written out her funeral. She's already told me, you're doing my funeral. I wrote all the instructions on the back of my Bible. So I'm going to die eventually and, you know, just go find my Bible in my house and do the funeral that way. And I was like, you got it, Connie. And she showed me she's having ice cream at her funeral. It's weird, I know. But here's the thing. Connie calls me from time to time. She says, Sean, I'm really sick. I think I'm going to die. I think this is the time the Lord's going to take me. And I need you to pray. And I know why Connie calls me to pray for her. She calls a bunch of people to pray for her. And it's not because I'm a pastor and she thinks I have like this special hotline to God. I don't. My cell plan is the same to Jesus, okay? It's the same as yours. You have the same access to the Father. But what she knows is this. In that moment, she's in so much pain. She's so scared. She can't see straight. She can't think rationally. And she definitely doesn't have much faith. And what she needs is my faith. She's leaning on my faith. This is why when you go through trials, you need other believers in your life. It's unfathomable to me how people get upset at a church of two, 3,000. They're mad that the pastor didn't visit them in the hospital. 
when there's two or 3,000 brothers or sisters sitting among you that you could know, that have the same access to the Father, that, could, that, that have the same power of God access to them to pray for you. See, the truth of the matter is this. We need each other's faith. And once you've gone through your trial, your faith is stronger so you can walk with other people through it. So, what do we do with all this? Well, here's what I, I want you to understand. The, the, the word, it says that if you, you um, consider it joy, that you're going through trials, that your trials actually produce this thing called perseverance. All right? And perseverance, um, I looked up the Greek word in it, and it's huptameno. Okay, that's the, the word actually for perseverance. And it's hupo and meno. It's two different words put together. And in, in English, right, the word hupo is where we get our word hyper or to strongly or to whatever. And some of you are like hyper, like my pastor. Um, right? <laughs> and then meno means to stand. So you hyper stand. That's what it means to endure. So when the trials are coming and they're coming on you and the wind is blowing and the waves are hitting, that when, when you have... When you've hyperstood, when you persevered in the little trials, God's prepared you now to hyperstand in the larger trials of your life, in the bigger things in your life. And when you haven't blamed God for the little thing problems that happen in your life, and you hyperstand, you get stronger and stronger. Here's what happens. Eventually something big hits, and you're able to stand your ground, and you don't cower, and you don't freak out, and you don't sue, and you're not outraged, and you're not doing all these crazy things, and you're standing your ground in faith, and the rest of the world who is secular goes, what the, how do they do that? How do they do that? See, perseverance means you hyperstand. You stand your ground. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do during this series, okay? Is I, I want you to get into the book of James with me. I want you to make a commitment to come to church on a regular basis and, and hear the book of James. Study the book of James. Um, I, I get it that some of you can't make it every week, but the good news about technology is you can download the app and you have the, the podcast right there on the phone and you can stay connected that way. But come in once a quarter, once a month, that's, you're not going to get God's word into you that way. That's like flossing once a month or once a quarter. It doesn't, it's like brushing your teeth once a quarter. It doesn't work, okay? And especially if you're coming so your kids can find faith and you're bringing them once a quarter, Huh, that's not going to work either. I just want you to know because the, the world's sowing all kinds of information into them for the, the other quarter. And they got a 45-minute lesson in church for a quarter. I want you to commit to coming on a regular basis and studying James. The other thing I would encourage you to do, I want you to commit to, is get into a growth group if you can. We have a new growth group starting Tuesday night that's going to be studying the book of James. Men, I teach a men's growth group on Tuesday morning. We are going through the book of James. If you want to join a growth group, take your card, and it's, there's a box on that says join a growth group. Fill it out, put it on there, put it in the offering. We'll get you in a growth group. Some of you, you can't be in a growth group, and we get that. That's not to make you feel guilty. I had someone a couple weeks ago say, hey, Sean, can I take the Bible study questions that are in the bulletin or that are on the app, and could I just, like, get some friends together at work and go through it and study the Bible? And I said, no, you can't study the Bible. How dare you? I'm kidding. Of course you can Maybe you do it with your family. Maybe you do it with a friend. Maybe you're doing it by yourself in your devotion. But get the book of James in you and see how it God's word transforms you. And then the last thing, it's real simple. When you come, bring a Bible. I know we put the words up here and that's awesome. And um, we, we will always do that because there's people that come that don't 
have a Bible or wouldn't know where to find it in the Bible, but bring a Bible. And I don't really care if you, you're old school and you have the analog paper Bible or you're just bringing it on your phone or iPad. It doesn't matter, but bring a Bible, take notes, and get this book into you. So remember James, we talked about the little brother of Jesus, the wimpy little brother of Jesus. You know, um, it even says in the book of John that Jesus' brothers didn't believe him. James didn't believe him. You need to think about that though, right? He grew up with Jesus. He saw Jesus go to the bathroom. He saw Jesus eat. He saw Jesus get sick. He saw Jesus trip and fall. He saw Jesus... That one time he was acting silly and he ran into the sliding glass door. Okay, they didn't have sliding glass doors back then. I'm kidding. But the equivalent of that for that age. He saw all that. And he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. He's like, that's my brother. Yeah, he was different. Yeah, he's real religious. But he was son of God. Come on. It's just Jesus. It says in John 7, 5, it said, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. They didn't believe him. But something happened. As a matter of fact, we find in Acts chapter um, 1, verse 9 through 14, I want to read it to you. It was after Jesus was crucified and he appeared to over 500 people and to all the apostles. And, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And this is the scene I'm about to read you. Starting in verse 9, it says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This, this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, he'll come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, and James, right? Remember, sons of thunder. And Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus. Remember, that's James the lesser. And Simon the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. See, before Jesus was crucified, they didn't believe in him. But interestingly enough, after the resurrection, they believe now. And some of you are like, oh, I know what happened. They saw, they were just jumping on the winning train. They were like Jesus bandwagon folk. They saw that Christianity would be this huge religion and they could be leaders in it. Let me explain to you something. That is the furthest from stupid, or furthest from smart I've ever heard. Because Christianity in that time, there were only maybe a couple hundred believers in that moment. There weren't many believers in the world. There was a couple hundred, and they all gathered together. Christianity was not even a blip on the historical radar. And then James becomes a believer. What would make someone believe that their brother is actually the Son of God? It was a resurrection. That when he came into contact with his older brother, back from the dead, he went, oh my gosh, this is real. He really is who he said he was. Because here's the truth of the matter. If you're skeptical about Jesus today, um, that's okay. 
Because he either was who he said he was or he wasn't. It's one or the other. There's no like in between. Either he was the son of God or he was crazy. And he led lots of people astray that died for him. So he wasn't like a good teacher. He was one or the other. James, though, came to believe. And in, in, the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's a story of the prodigal son, right? The younger son goes off. And he spends all of his father's inheritance. And the, and the fact of the matter is, when he took his father's inheritance, he also took some of his older brother's inheritance. Because his father's, inher- his father's possessions would have grew over the period of his lifetime. And gained interest. And got bigger and bigger. And, he, and when the younger son took his inheritance to the left, he actually robbed the older brother in that story of his inheritance. But in Eastern culture, any proper older brother, any great older brother would have left everything behind and and left his father's house and went and found his younger brother and wrung his neck and killed him. No, he wouldn't have. He would have found him and begged him and pleaded with him to come back. At whatever expense it would have been, he would have done it to bring unity to the family because it was an honor culture at that time. Do you see what Jesus did? The older brother, Jesus, saw that James didn't believe. That James was separated from God by his sin, just like you and me. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the older brother came to get the younger brother. And he showed him who he was. And when James met the resurrected Jesus, it all changed for him. That's the question for you today. What do you do with the resurrected Jesus? Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone listens, I will come in and dine with them. That, that Jesus wants to come into your heart. He's knocking at the door of your heart. John said, but, it, but as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That if you would invite Christ into your life to forgive you of your sin... If you would lay down your way, you being the boss of your life, and in faith, even though you may not fully know what it looks like, you would trust Jesus and you would take up his way and follow him. The Bible says that you've received him. And it says if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. And today's the day God is knocking at the door of your heart. This is the day you receive him. It's no mistake you made it to church today among that stupid race out there that keeps everyone from getting here. I know. You ran here? Oh, I thought you ran it. Listen, I only hate that race because it affects church attendance. But anyways, here's the deal. Today's the day, November 5th, Jesus knocked at the door of your heart. If you would receive him, don't put it off. Some of you, you've done it before, and today's the day you just come home to him. You've been going your way, but it's time to go his. For some of you, that's the best decision you ever made in your life, and you know it. And you're going through a trial right now, whether it's your marriage or financial or it's physical or it's a child of yours or work or someone you love. But here's what I want you to know. God's not doing it to you, but he's going to pull you through. And you're going to come out the other side with a testimony if you'll believe. But for some of you, today is the day. You've got to open that door. Let's pray.